0: Welcome to the podcast. I'm Richard McLean and I'm Carl Hale and this is Please Leave a Message. Season 4, Episode 3. Overall, this is Episode 42, so this episode should be the answer to life, the universe, and everything. We're called Please Leave a Message because we do have a phone number set up that you can call into. The number is 801-SKETCH1. That's 801-753-8241. And you can call in with questions, you can call in with stories, just anything that you want to share with us, and you can participate and be a part of the podcast. You can get to the podcast by going to pleaseleavemessage.com. Anything we talk about that's visual, we'll try to put pictures up on our Instagram. You can find us at messagepodcast. And if you want to email us or, you know, send us some cool found audio that you've got, email us at pleasepodcast at gmail.com. This week I got a few things in the mail and I realized I have a serious problem. Apparently I'm obsessed with The War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells. I mean, I already kind of knew this about myself. I've got Jeff Wayne's musical version of The War of the Worlds. Have you heard that? I have not. It's a prog rock version Interesting. Uh, of The War of the Worlds. Uh, came out in 1974, I believe. And when I came across that album, I absolutely loved it. Hmm. And so I've got multiple, multiple copies of it. I've got it on an LP. I've got it on cassette tape. I've got it on A-track. I've got it on Super Audio CD. I've got the big giant collector's edition that's seven discs. And then recently they did a new version of it. So it's 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 an adaptation of The War of the Worlds. It doesn't tell the story exactly as written. And so they did one that's closer to the original version for Audible. And they put it up as a audio drama, I guess is what they call that. Interesting, but it was the same group. It's the same musician behind it. So it uses kind of the same background music and stuff, but they, they had new voices. It's closer to an audiobook version. Because it's actually, it's closer to the actual book than the original version is. But it uses all the music cues and stuff that they'd written for the prog rock version Hmm. in the background. It's really cool. It's five hours long. Wow. Uh, The original is two discs, and so that's roughly two hours. Uh, But this, so this is a five hour, so it's closer to the actual book. But it's still, they still took some liberties here and there. It's still not exactly the same. I do have a copy of the Orson Welles one. I've got the 1953 George Powell movie. I've got the 2005 Spielberg slash Tom Cruise version. Not the best. Not the worst, though. (laughs) Actually, I I read the book again right before I went and saw that version. And even though they took a lot of liberties, it's like really weirdly different. There was a lot of elements in it that I don't think people realize were right out of the book. Uh, It's just because of the way they adapted it. Interesting. And I recently got an audiobook version where David Tennant, it reads it. And there's like so many different audiobook versions. There's no way I'm going to collect all those, but I had to get at least one, right? Right. So, and then... David Tennant, I can go better with that. Right. I I was looking through all the different ones, trying to find a good one. And then that one doesn't even come up when you search for it, but that one's included in a collection of H.G. Wells stories. So you don't...
1: Not only do you get that, you get a whole bunch of other... HG Wells stories. So did you like this? Did you like this? The original HG Wells story before you heard the. So rock? I liked the story, but I had never, re- I, I didn't read the book until later. Mm. I Kind of
0: got obsessed with all the th- other stuff first, but I, I saw the George Powell movie when I was a kid and I thought it was really cool. So like, I always kind of liked the story. Um, and I knew about the Orson Welles thing because that's just crazy how that
1: went down. With the radio... With the radio thing yeah, and people thinking was really, it was real. Yeah, that's the part of it that's the coolest to me is that it was like fake news. Yeah.
0: And 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 so just the whole thing. And so then when I came across the prog rock version, I was like, this is amazing. And it's a cool album. Every time I finish listening to it, I'm like, I want to listen to something like this, but that isn't this. I've yet to find anything hmm. that fits the bill. So then this I got recently... It's called The Coming of the Martians. It's a faithful audio adaptation of The War of the Worlds. So this is unlike every other audio adaptation that's ever been done. They stick to the story in this one. And this was produced, I think, as a demo for a sound studio. It says like Sherwood Studios, Sherwood Sound Studios on the back. They're a studio, an audio studio in London, and... uh they kind of did this. They did a Kickstarter for it, but it was kind of just to to show what they can do at their studio, hmm. and it's in full surround sound, which is fantastic, and if you know me, I'm obsessed with surround sound, so the fact that I'm obsessed with War of the Worlds, and I'm obsessed with surround sounds. You had to have it. I had to have that. So, what does that mean, a faithful audio adaptation? So what they did was, it's an, so it's like an audio drama. It's like a radio play. Okay. But instead of being an audio book where they just read the book, it's, it's more like a play, but unlike every other adaptation of the story that's ever been done, they stuck to the book. So everything that happens in the book happens in this. They didn't change the characters. Like in the Jeff Wayne version, just to make it easier, they like combined some characters. And so the same things happen, but it's a little more economical time-wise when he's not running into so many different people in different mm. places. And so this one, they stuck to the story, which was nice. And then I got this other thing. Uh, my favorite role-playing game is Savage Worlds, and I found this War of the Worlds, the Remains book for Savage Worlds. So it's uh, it takes place after the story. So all these aliens have come down, they've died... But they've left their technology over the world. So the different governments of the world are fighting over the technology and developing new technology from what they are able to gather. Um, But then the aliens also are not done with this, and they start sending more people from Mars. And so it's kind of cool. That's a lot of War of the world stuff. That is a lot. You might have a problem. I might have a problem, yeah. There are still a few things I don't have. Well, there's always tomorrow. Yeah. There is. There's that 90s series that was on Fox. Do you remember that? It was like late 80s, early 90s. And it was the War of the Worlds and the aliens were coming back again. Oh, interesting. Um, But there was like this whole government cover up. It was kind of like X-Files was really popular at the time. And so I think they were trying to build off of that same audience. And I remember that show. I don't remember it really well. I just kind of sort of remember elements of it. I guess, I guess there was a DVD release of it, but I heard there's some issues with it that people weren't too happy about, like stuff that was cut out of episodes for Mm -hmm. no apparent reason. And like even the, the opening animation, the alien hand would come out over the earth. Oh. And apparently that got edited out. Oh. And I, nobody seems to know why they took (laughs) that out for the DVD release. Then there's an anime, there's the war of the world's Goliath. And it's kind of the same thing. Um, It's after it, and the world has developed new technologies, and then the aliens are coming back, and they have to fight them again. Which I saw once, but I was really tired, and I fell asleep. So I need to watch it again. Give it another chance. Yeah. And then I found out that somebody wrote a sequel called The Massacre of Mankind. I haven't checked that out yet. Mm. Anyway, so that's what I've been up to, just being really obsessive about the first real sci-fi book (laughs) that's really cool that's really interesting (laughs) so anyway i got this the other day too which i thought you might be interested in how to think when you write you were asking me about stories and stuff
1: you write yeah oh yeah you mentioned this too. yeah to me when we were talking about it
0: yeah so i it just came yesterday i haven't had a chance to really like i looked through it a little bit Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so it's these two brothers that work together one does writing and the other one does the drawing. Mm-hmm. So they've done two books already called how to think when you draw mm-hmm. and their drawing style is fabulous. And this is all stuff that they've got free on their Instagram account. Okay. But I find the how to think when you write stuff, the text is just too small to read on mm-hmm. Instagram. And so I, I typically don't even read these when they're on Instagram. I was like, I'll just buy the book when it
1: comes out. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I, I am grateful for Instagram in as I try to put some of my artwork and such out, but I have a hard time actually consuming information through Instagram. I can't imagine trying to consume all of this on that. Yeah. Like you can, you can screen. do the little pinch thing and make it bigger, Yeah,
0: but, but it's hard to like move it around. Cause as soon yeah. as you let go, it shrinks yep. down again. And so these are, they're great. It's cool stuff. I kind of flipped through it today and read mm. just random pages here and there to see what they've got. Cool. love to look it through, but yeah, that's pretty cool. But I I read your two short stories. Oh, did you? That you've got online. Awesome. So. Good. I I really enjoyed them. Did you? I did. Uh, Well, excellent, since
1: they're my first and second stories ever. Okay. I'm glad they came across all right. No,
0: they did. I was reading the second one, and it told me it was the first one you'd posted, and I didn't realize I'd Mm -hmm. done it.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was trying to figure out how to post that well on my, I'm I'm just using a a WordPress blog, and I think I need to play with that a little bit so that it posts better. But I, f- I figured it out, so I read, I guess, the second one first.
0: Okay, the lo- uh, the longer one. The longer one, yeah. Okay. And I was a little lost in the first few paragraphs. Okay. Just telling whose voice was uh-huh. whose. But once that clicked in, all the confusion, I was like, oh, okay, okay, I get what's going on. <laughs> Interesting. But that's I find that is true with a lot of sci-fi and fantasy that I read. Uh-huh. Uh, I struggle with the first couple chapters, usually.
1: You know, it's funny. I've gotten some feedback on, uh, from people who don't uh, necessarily read sci-fi fantasy. In fact, made ups, made up voices, made up names. Mm-hmm. And just the fact of a made up name, it sounds like it can be confusing and you know, we're used to having like Jane and Sally. And so <laughs> if I come out with Asroth and Pellin, those are names that are harder for people. See to... that,
0: that didn't even, that wasn't even a problem for me. No. Good. Um, Good. It was just, I don't know, the, the way it was written in the first couple paragraphs, I was just... Then when I realized what was going on, all that clicked in. I'm like, oh, okay, okay, okay. I see what's going on here. Good. No problem. And so that that's that's a normal thing for me. You know, I don't... I, that's... Sometimes I struggle for the first couple chapters. Especially sci-fi is even worse than fantasy for me. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. What, I think it's the milieu building where you're just trying to figure out this whole world that you're in. Hmm interesting and so I often find the first couple chapters just a slog to get through but I push through because I know okay I'm gonna really enjoy this and it works out and it'll click in and I, I know it's gonna be great if I'm like three or four chapters in and I'm still struggling then I, <laughs> I usually just give up at that. but you
1: point. made it through the the short story yeah yeah good. I did I read it all the way through and I thought it was great really good. enjoyed it good I'm glad yeah I definitely I think it I think it's probably reads more like a science fiction than anything else perhaps. But I also am not quite sure what kind of genre it really should be called. I I would call it... So, lately the thing is
0: to just lump fantasy and sci-fi into just speculative fiction. Uh Uh-huh. And just... Just call it speculative fiction. Call it speculative fiction. Because they're the same thing. They're they're just different genres of the same Mm -hmm. thing. Um, They have a lot of the same... I can't remember where I read that a lot. It might have been in the Orson Scott card book where he talks about that a lot. Mm-hmm. Or there's another book that I read. Oh, it was called The Writer's Guide to Creating a Sci-Fi Universe. Hmm. That might have been where I read it. I can't remember. That it's just called Speculative yeah, Fiction. Because in that one, or wherever it was, they were just... They, were, they talked a lot about how sci-fi and fantasy are just so much alike. Mm-hmm. And really the only things that separate them are like... We call fantastical things science in the science fiction or it's based on actual science mm-hmm. or we just make stuff up and call it magic and fantasy yeah.
1: no that's totally true especially you get into you get into science fiction with aliens and we now have, we call them aliens instead of monsters we call them right you know we have dwarves in the one and we have I don't know small aliens in the other <laughs> but it's it's yeah I I agree. It's, it does seem like it's all speculative. Yeah. So they, they
0: just have so much in common. Like I guess where I was reading that it was a bigger article. It was pretty, I can't, I'm honestly, I, it really stuck with me, but I can't remember what it was, what the source was, but he was talking about how in the history of like sci-fi and fantasy writing, how authors would actually get together because they all kind of knew each other. They all Mm -hmm. wrote for the same Pulp Fiction magazines. Hmm. So they all kind of, it was kind of this little community. They all kind of knew each other. He said some of them would get together and they're like, okay, how are we going to push the scientists? What do we want them to come up with next? And they would literally come up with an idea. Then three or four of them would write a story based around that. Hmm. And uh, just kind of try to push the scientific community. Because they knew that scientists enjoyed their stuff and were reading their stuff. And so
1: I I thought, I always thought that was kind of interesting. Yeah, I love seeing the forward thinking of star trek star trek i think invented everything (laughs) they invented the ipad they invented the flip phone right it's yeah lovely to watch yeah
0: there's so many things in there that's just every day now so Mm -hmm. i i'm still waiting for my replicator right that would be nice (laughs) yep yep but yeah a lot of stuff has come out and i think they're actually working on that i think they've got a few different they're kind of using 3d printing technology and (laughs) I
1: think I've read that they are actually are working on that. Well, someone's got to be. Yeah. Yeah. So that's cool. But the cool thing to me about, um, I guess we can call it speculative fiction, because it really does work in science fiction or fantasy, is the ability to explore what we as normal non-speculative humans are experiencing in ways that broaden our minds, open our eyes to the both the beauty and the maybe terror of the quotidian life that we live every day from one day to the next. And that's really what is fascinating to me about science fiction and the fantasy. Okay. But it's fun to, I've never tried writing before. I've always just enjoyed reading it. Um, But what actually drove me to try to write was because I do see powerful truths, around me that do start sounding kind of science fiction-y. So anyway, that's that's what's interesting to me. So I like the term speculative fiction. I'm going to have to play with that a little bit. Yeah, I know there's... I'm.
0: It was either a book or an article that I read that went pretty deep into it. Mm-hmm. But again, right now I can't remember exactly what it was. Cool. So I'm going to have to see if I can track that down again. And if I do, I'll put a link along with the podcast. Awesome.
1: So... So tell us a little about yourself. I'm a technologist. I've got training and and uh, schooling in software engineering as well as software management, and that consumed the first twenty years of my career and definitely formed my brain in very linear left brain kind of ways. Okay. But then I uh, a few years ago accidentally made a piece of artwork that <laughs> um, got into a. A juried exhibit that was way, way cooler than I realized it was at the time. I was just like, oh, well, okay, they want it in the museum. Fine. But then I had friends who had been trying to get into the exhibit for a long time, suddenly stopped talking to me and I didn't quite understand what that was all about. <laughs> um, what was the piece? It was, uh, I called it uh, One Eternal Round. Okay. And uh, all of my art has ended up being almost all of it. Almost all of it has ended up having some pretty significant religious overtones to it. Okay. Um even though it's all very kind of mathematical and geometric and, and abstract stuff. I put a title on it that is pulling things together that I saw in the piece. Anyway, so this piece was a kinetic interactive kinetic marble run. It was kind of a pretty piece of wood. I remember that. Do you remember that? I do remember that. Yeah, so it was fun and it kind of blew my mind wide open as to what, you know, the the creative End of things was, and I I had spent a lot of time creating software, mm-hmm. and my good friends who still are creating wonderful things in software kind of roll their eyes at me when I say that that's just not as satisfying to me as when you're moving a, bits and bytes around. It doesn't feel like creation to me as much as a as when I'm moving tangible substance around, I guess. Right. And so uh, I guess to some degree I've always been a creator of some kind, but the artwork opened something in me that I found to be really satisfying and. And so I've made several pieces and made art become a central part of my life. And it's been very satisfying. That's great. My dad is a programmer. Mm. He's been a programmer for a long
0: time. And I remember when he was going to college, I would go up to the university with him sometimes to feed punch cards Mm. into the machine for his programming classes. So that's how long he's been doing it. (laughs) Yeah. My
1: dad had a punch card machine. Yeah.
0: But what's interesting to me is, even though that is, like you said, a very kind of linear left brain kind of thinking, I always felt like he was pretty creative about how he would handle things. Mm -hmm. I I took a few programming classes and I would, when I would get stuck, I would ask him and he would like walk me through the logic of it. And the way that he would explain how to do it, it was always so interesting to me because it seemed so backwards Mm -hmm. sometimes. And I'm like, oh, well, yeah, of course that makes sense. But how did you even arrive at that? <laughs> Do it exactly the opposite way that you think it should work, and it'll work. Hmm. I just it was kind of interesting to me how he's he's very creative in that way. He also writes poetry from time to time. Oh, cool! Which I enjoy his poetry.
1: Well, I've been surprised over um, my software career to find how many people in the software industry also have artistic interest. Mm -hmm. A lot of musicians, a lot of artists, a lot of poets, and they're writing code during the day and then they're doing something else at night. And I do think that artists and software engineers, I found, have a lot in common. It's funny to me that the software engineers are all, many of them, maybe the majority, I would say the majority, definitely the majority, are introverts and artists turn out to be also most of us are introverts very much and so this idea of like being focused on what's your inside your head is very consuming to you and and you're spending your time trying to push that out to the world around you and that's the same in both of those industries
0: yeah i i'm actually coming at it from the other end because when i was growing up my original career choice was to be an animator but I, for a long time, I said what I wanted to do was be an Imagineer
1: because
0: hmm. uh, that's the guys at Disney that design the mm-hmm. park rides and stuff. And so at first it was an animator, but then it kind of morphed into Imagineer for, for many years until I kind of realized that, wait, that's just an engineer with a cool title. <laughs> and that involves a lot of math. And although I don't hate math like a lot of artists do, I think there's a some real beauty in it. I, I just struggle with it Mm -hmm. at certain levels. Mm -hmm. I kind of, I went away from that and I went back to just the pure art. I got my animation degree. I worked in the animation field a bit and kind of through a back door of when I had to, I was having trouble getting work and I ended up back in school and I ended up taking audio classes and that clicked with me. Hmm. Just the way that the university worked at the time, they've changed this now, but Anybody in the digital media program had to take all the basic classes, no matter what their focus was. So the animators would complain about having to take the audio classes and the film students would complain about having to do the storyboarding class and actually have to draw something. But because I was a transfer student, technically, I didn't have to take all of the basic classes. There was only one I had to take. And it was that audio class, hmm. but it just clicked with me. All the other animators were just complaining about it. And I'm like, what are you talking about? This is my easiest class. I don't even have to study. Everything just makes sense. And it just <laughs> sticks in my brain.
1: <laughs> so cool. I, I just
0: fell in love with audio. So I ended up forging a, a friendship with uh, the professor. We're really good friends still. I've spent hours at his house messing around with audio equipment. And <laughs> I got obsessed with surround sound, mm-hmm. which has been very consuming. So did this collection around us here start after that or before that? The albums did. I had maybe a milk crate worth Hmm. roughly before that. And
1: you have a little bit more than that. I have a little bit more than that now. So that's interesting. So do you think that your education in what audio entailed gave you a a deeper appreciation for the art of audio? Oh, definitely. Um, So the technical education. But
0: here's the thing. I always had that appreciation for it. I was always, I was the nerdy kid that was in all the choirs all the time. You know, my, my dad's a musician. My dad plays piano. My dad plays upright bass. I've always loved music. And that's something that kind of clicked with me in that first class. We had to do what you call a, your desert Island CD. You put all your favorite songs on a CD, the ones you would want to have with you. Mm -hmm. If you were lost on a desert Island, Mm -hmm. we were given that assignment the first day of class. It was due the last day of class. As soon as we were given that assignment, I started writing things down. And then I was having trouble whittling it down to one disc. And I overheard the teacher say to another student, well, I guess if you want to do a double disc set, I'll (laughs) allow it. I took that as a license that I could do it too. So I did. And I turned it in. And about three days later, I got an email from him. And he was like, I forgot this song existed. This song is a gem that nobody knows about this song. And he's just going on and on about the different songs I picked. And at the end of the email, he was like, can we be best friends? <laughs> and so now we are. It's <laughs> cool. But so that, that love and appreciation of music was always there. I just didn't have an album collection behind it. I had a lot of cassette tapes mm-hmm. um, and I always had to always appreciated music, but that just kind of opened my eyes more. I remember when I was first doing my animation degree, I struggled with the audio portion of it because I didn't know what I was doing. They just kind of threw us at it and said, okay, do this. And so the second time when I had some audio background and actually knew what I was doing, I I really quite enjoy it. Mm -hmm. And so that's that's what I was kind of getting at is now that I've got all this audio stuff in my brain, I'm like, okay, I need to go back and do the computer science stuff again because I've got... Some things I would like plugins to do that nobody's made. Hmm. There's some hardware I would like to build that nobody has made something that does that. So I kind of need to go back and get the science side of it so that I can do some things. I kind of know how to do it, but I don't know how to do the programming or the electronics to make this do that. I kind of understand the theoretical side, Mm -hmm. but I don't know how to do the physical, make it actually happen side. That's cool. So you'll so be doing a little bit of that creation. I'm planning on doing that. Uh, I'm probably going to... I work at a library, and for the next two, two and a half, three years, I think I'm going to work on getting my Master of Library Science, MLS. MLS, yeah. Yeah. I think I'm going to get my MLS so that when my boss retires, I can become the boss. Oh. Because I'm at the school, I have the liberty of taking free classes all the time. Cool. And so... Do they, they offer an MLS? They don't, but they've got a program where... I can get education from another school and they will help fund that to help build my career. Hmm. I've got something like that. I got to, I got to look into that tomorrow actually. So I can get signed up for classes in fall, I guess.
1: That's cool. My dad was a librarian for his entire career. And and, uh, the MLS is something that is kind of near and dear to my heart. The, the internet kind of transformed and the information revolution transformed the library Concept,
0: Yeah. It's, it's still going through all kinds of yeah. flux and we have meeting. I'm part of the, uh, the emerging technologies committee. Hmm. And so I go in and we talk about just ideas for what we can do, different things that the library could provide for the public. We're talking about doing a maker space. Oh, cool. And having a maker space for the library. Yeah. So they'll have like 3d printers in there and book binding
1: bookbinding would be cool for that a library cool. makerspace.
0: That would be cool. They were talking about a sewing machine. They were talking about a sound studio, a simple, like, uh, it's just a studio space that you can film stuff in. Mm-hmm. So That's cool. It's still kind of in the ether right now. But
2: mm-hmm.
0: They asked us to do some research on it, and then they were like, no, and they kind of went away, and now they're kind of circling back around again. Because mm-hmm. uh, I guess there's some space in the library that's possibly going to be opening up soon
1: hmm. so. that's cool i love libraries libraries i could spend days and days at the byu library my dad worked at the byu library my mom worked at the BOU library and when i was a teenager i would in the summer days disappear in those stacks and not come out until they had to go home at the end of the day i i
0: absolutely do love libraries i remember there was a time when i was a kid that i thought man it'd be a really cool place to work and now i do work. No, you one. Do. The one thing I miss, cause I used to live up in Salt Lake County and now I've moved down to Utah County and I do miss the the county library system mm. up there cause it's way better than what they've I've got heard. It's here. awesome. It's just so amazing. They've got a lot of libraries mm. and you can go to any of them with your card and you can request things from any of them to be shipped to any other library. It's just a great system and there's just so much available and it's All for free. That's cool. And here I live just outside of the boundaries to Orem because I live in Vineyard. And so if I want to use the library, I have to pay like $100 a year. Yeah. So I don't use it anymore.
1: Yeah, we're in the same boat where our town, Mapleton, does not have a fantastic library. But Springville has a very nice library. And so we pay $100 a year to
0: We should probably do it because I feel like my kids are missing out and we've just been cheap. (laughs)
1: <laughs> well, you know, we skipped a couple of years and we didn't have it and we decided, you know, we we are crazy not to, because yeah, when we have it, the kids are down there getting books all the time. It's really healthy.
0: Yeah. So I think we need to revisit that. Yeah. I wanted to talk about, cause last time you were here, we were having this big artist to get together and we were talking about just some cool concepts and I kind of wanted to get into that a little bit. So I think you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, I think so. I'm
1: not sure how to get into it, though. (laughs) Well, it it kind of comes back to what I mentioned a bit ago about my art, always having fairly heavy religious overtones. I was born into a Latter-day Saint family. Um, My family was entirely religious all growing up. Um, I was religious all growing up. I never had any point in my childhood or young you know teenage life where i ever doubted the existence of god where i ever questioned the the value of religion anything like that it was always very integral to my life i don't know when it started and it may have started back then but i kind of suspect it started later i discovered that my take on the reality around me is absolutely There's no compartmentalization of my various interests and beliefs. I love science. I love the physical world around me. uh, I'm an empiricist. I, I like to try things out and see what works and see what doesn't. And I've never once felt a need to compartmentalize my religious beliefs with my observations of the world around me. And then I realized that that's not entirely normal for many people. They have to either find themselves rejecting one or the other, their religious beliefs or their, let's call it scientific beliefs. Although I don't like, frankly, either of those terms. I think they're compartmentalizing just by using those terms. But whatever the case, I kind of, I thought of everything in one great whole. And it came to the fore for me at one point when, well, first of all, to tie back to what I said about the the religious art. I make a piece of art, and I don't necessarily intend for it to make a, some religious statement, but in my expression of my art and what's cool about the physics of this, this kinetic sculpture, it also, in my view, beautifully represents some religious concept. And so I don't start out necessarily with a religious idea with my art, but I almost always end up with a religious idea. Similarly, I, when I do start out with a religious idea, I find beautiful ways in geometry to represent that religious idea. So it's very cohesive for me. Anyway, so when I I first started realizing that this wasn't necessarily the way everybody looked at faith, religious faith and scientific belief, when I was a young married person who we had two and a half kids, I think at the time, maybe three kids. And I was the internet blogosphere was, you know, taking off and And chat rooms and discussion Mm -hmm. boards and all that was taking off. And there was a beautiful discussion board belief net. And it was for religious discussion. And there was religious, there were different forums. You could have religious discussion in whatever flavor of religion you wanted. And of course, there was a Mormon religion discussion space. And you had everyone you would expect to have there. The very faithful to the very antagonistic, the very dogmatic to the more open-minded. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I loved it. I thought it was fascinating to listen to, I guess, read all of these different viewpoints. And uh, I would express my opinions and, and how I saw things. And I had conversations with a few different people. And one of them was someone who was very eloquent in the way he wrote and, and very educated. And he would push me on some of my fundamental type beliefs beliefs that i'd just taken for granted and it was good it was really healthy i would i enjoyed thinking about well okay he's the way he said that that makes it sound different in my ears and so that helped me to start understanding how some belief that i thought was very simple and obvious could be a little whacked in in somebody else's perspective okay well What was the real kicker was when he one day, I found out later in exasperation, we have since become good friends, but he was at the time struggling with the idea of whether there is a God at all. And I was expressing this very concrete view on what I thought was the standard Mormon God, which was a being who uh, was subject to natural law and a being who was, yes, our creator, but had done that inside the context of nothing magical. There was no such thing as magic. There's just you know, natural processes that, that can be controlled, can be handled, can be managed. And as you understand higher law, you should be able to understand how to manage those processes better, but there's no magic. And, and yes, of course, this being would exist inside of our own space and probably, yeah, in this universe. And wait a second, we even know the name of the star around it, which his planet orbits. And it's all, it all just made sense to me. And he said, okay, hold on a second. So what you're telling me is you believe in, and you worship an extraterrestrial humanoid deity. And I stopped. And this is all, you know, through internet chat, you know, group, right? But I remember pausing and I thinking, well, that sounds really weird. And I had normally when I was confronted with somebody describing my views in in ways that sounded weird, I would either recognize that I had to change, you know, I really don't believe that that way, or I, I wanted to restate how it was said. Mm -hmm. But when he said that, I realized that that is precisely what I worship. That's exactly what I worship. I worship an extraterrestrial humanoid deity. And we can quibble on the term humanoid, perhaps, because really we might not be humanoid. We might be Godoid. I'm not sure. But, you know, because I think, you know, the gods came first before us, but whatever the case, yeah, I think they probably look a whole heck of a lot like us and Yes, they're extraterrestrial. They live in this universe. And so that was my first kind of realization that I really do have no seams between my religious views and my scientific views. And and I believe in all sorts of stuff that make religious people uncomfortable. And I believe in all sorts of stuff that makes scientists uncomfortable. I absolutely worship a God. I absolutely believe in evolutionary processes. And I have no problems with, you know, mixing it all together. So this is why I loved when you said that.
0: Cause you said that and I was like, that's exactly how I've thought about it all this time. <laughs> I've never put, I've never quite said it that way. And I've never really, I'm not a vocal person. So if I'm on a chat board, I'm, I'm a lurker. I just kind of read what everybody says and, mm-hmm. and I learn and grow and stuff, but I, I don't get involved in the conversations. I just kind of watch, but so I never kind of put it out there that that's how I felt or, you know, but, but when you said that, when you're here the other day, it really clicked with me. Cause I'm like, yeah, that's, that's how I've kind of viewed it my whole life. Mm. And I'd never really thought about it and I've never heard anybody else put it that way. That just makes sense to me. That's, that's how it works for me too. So it was really cool to I had a, a nice moment. <laughs> well, good when good. you brought
1: that up. <laughs> well, you'll be happy to know that we're not alone because that friend of mine who first used that in a in an exasperated tone, trying to trigger me into rejecting that belief, has since come around to having the same belief. Okay. He also feels like the God that we as Mormons worship is an extraterrestrial humanoid deity. Uh, humanoid. Let's give some flexibility there, maybe. But. Yeah but that our God is one that is inside the same space we're in. Now, is it possible that our God is phased differently than us so that they can reside in the same space, but that a spaceship might not get to them? Sure. I mean, do we understand all of what physics is about? No. And does what we understand about physics allow for Multiple dimensions, multiple universes lying parallel to each other. Absolutely, it does. Mm-hmm. The multiverse is a thing, and there's plenty of space there for us to live. But for me, the main point is I never look at a scientific claim or a religious claim. I try very hard not to reject outright either side without giving it some space and seeing what happens with it. That's the empiricist in me, I guess. Now, obviously the you know, jihad type religious claims, I do reject right uh, very Absolutely. quickly. Similarly, we've had scientific claims that scientists also have now come to reject. Right. And, and we see beautiful things on both science and religion evolve. And if science and religion does not agree, then one of them is wrong. And we'll find the answer. One or both is wrong. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah. Thanks for sharing that.
1: Yeah. I just have a, a real... Passion. And, and it's because I've seen friends of mine who have felt like they had to choose between one or the other. Yeah. And so I have a real passion for not allowing that to happen. We can have truth reside inside of us. We don't have to choose between one set of truth and another. It's all truth. It's one great whole.
0: Well, the, the whole scientific method um, from the history that I've read, the Catholic church was trying to establish proof. And so... That's the beginnings of science was right there. And the beginnings of, uh, which science was it? Geology. The beginnings of, of geology was them trying to prove catastrophic things had happened, like the flood. Oh, interesting. That's that's the foundations of geology started with that. Mm-hmm. They were traveling the world, looking at rocks and stuff, trying to prove that there had been a flood. Mm-hmm.
1: Interesting. And, so, and obviously astronomy as well. Astronomy started with religious beliefs. Yeah. And yeah, and I I think the the mistake we make is when we make assumptions, we make assumptions that this must be the case. So for example, my kids probably are sick of me talking about is evolution and the creation of God. I believe in evolution. Mm -hmm. I believe in the evolution of man, very likely. I mean, I believe in all the evolution. I believe in geological, biological and astronomic cosmic evolution. I do. It makes perfect sense to me. Does that mean that I reject my creator? Does that mean that I reject humanoid beings who are super advanced, way beyond what I can possibly understand as being benevolent beings who love me and who want me to become like them and that they set this whole entire thing up, that they were the ones that were involved in making me be who I am? Mm -hmm. In other words, do I believe that God created me? Absolutely, I do. I believe both of those things and they're both very cohesive Mm -hmm. in my mind. There's no conflict. But what the panic is when Darwin first started talking about the evolutionary model, we were dependent on this idea that we magically appeared when God breathed into the clay, that there was this magic that was necessary and the explanation for that was God. And so then if you can come up with some other explanation for, well, wait a second, maybe it wasn't some magical breath in some clay Maybe it was actually that this species evolved into this other species, which evolved into this other species, and complexity grew, and over you know, eons we developed what we have. If we have this alternative explanation, then the fear is, oh, then we can reject God. Well, fine, you can reject God, but you could have rejected God all along. You could have rejected God back before there was any kind of other example explanation for how we came to be, simply by choosing another god by choosing some other mythology. I think everybody has a choice to reject or embrace God. And I embrace God in what I think is a much more stable belief system. It's not dependent on any magic.
0: Right. I I only once had a uh, really serious crisis of faith. And it was actually surprisingly recent. And I just had to kind of reflect on experiences that I had and I'm like, Mm -hmm. I'm being stupid, but now I'm like rock solid (laughs) where I thought I was solid before. Mm. I'm I'm much more rock solid now that I've been through that. And I know some other people struggle a lot longer than that. And I think part of what helped me is that I I had kind of a, that was all there, the basics of it, you know, how it was all one thing, not actually multiple things science and religion. I've always been able to put them together in my head. And every time science made a discovery, I'm like, yeah, that makes sense because my religion tells me this, or, you know, I learned something new and I'm being like, oh, 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 that's this thing that I learned at church, but stated a different way. Mm-hmm. I've been uh, kind of thankful for that. And, but I don't know why I've kept it to myself for so long, mm. <laughs> probably because I thought everybody thought Maybe I was crazy for thinking that way, but I I guess I'm not the only one.
1: So. Well, you know, I I think that there is a fear. Um we've we've learned a lot in, in our shared religious background, but I think a lot of religious people have the same fear. The fear is that if you get all logical, that you'll lose your faith. Right. And that if and in fact we're told that we can't rely on the arm of flesh, right? Right. Which I I actually believe is true. However, for me, That's fairly problematic because I had a time in my life when I woke up one morning and I realized that my spiritual testimony was gone. I had no like feelings of the spirit. I had no emotional or religious warmness, no comfort, none of those feelings that I had felt earlier in my life. I was an adult, I had a few kids, and I just woke up and I realized that I didn't have those feelings Mm -hmm. and it really concerned me because this was my entire life. I had felt strong emotion in terms of gratitude to God for what I have in terms of, in terms of the beauty of the universe. I'd had strong emotion and what I believed at the time. And I believe now to have been spiritual witness, Mm -hmm. spiritual witness of truth but I woke up one morning and I didn't have those feelings. And for about, oh, I don't know. It felt like about two years. I'm not quite sure how long it lasted. I didn't have those. And what carried me through that time was my intellectual testimony of the church, my intellectual testimony of the God that I believed in. Mm-hmm. And fortunately for me, my intellect and my spiritual experiences coincided well enough I would say perfectly, but I'm sure that's not true. And so as I sat there and said, okay, do I feel that Jesus is a thing, that Jesus performed something that we refer to as the atonement that brings me into connection with God? Do I feel that that's true? And no, I didn't feel it. But does it make rational sense to me that such a thing would be required? And does it make rational sense to me that if such a thing was required, that it would be provided and that does it make rational sense to me that that these super advanced beings whom we call god would make sure that there were pieces put in place that would allow me to come back to their presence to to become one with them does that all make rational sense to me and and can i see the logical steps for all of that and the answer was absolutely absolutely i sat there and realized that i would have been intellectually dishonest with myself if I were to have rejected the faith that I had had through my life. And so for those many months, I relied entirely on my intellectual testimony and worked very actively to get back my spiritual testimony Mm -hmm. because the spiritual testimony was a beautiful thing to me. And it is to me now a beautiful thing. And I'm grateful that I have both. And so I get a little agitated when someone preaches over the pulpit that we should not rely on the intellect because the intellect, without the intellect, I would not be a believer right now. I would not.
0: I had a similar experience. Different though, because my my rational brain has never been really strong. I've learned all the the logic things, but my brain just doesn't function that way. I've tried because I really respect intellectual thought. I really look up to that. But i have never, my mind just doesn't work that way. The last ward that I lived in just felt weird to me. From the day we moved in to the day we moved out, that word always felt a little off to me. I could never put my finger on what it was. I can never explain what it was. Just something was different there than any other place I've ever lived. I couldn't explain it, but I realized at some point that it had been a really long time since I had any kind of a spiritual experience. Hmm. I used to have them all the time. It wasn't like I woke up one day kind of a thing. I just gradually at some point I realized it's you know, it's been a really long time since I actually felt anything at church. I'm still going to church because I know it's the right thing, and I know all that's true. I have that testimony, but I haven't felt anything for a really long time. And it was weird to me, and it it didn't concern me, but it just was I just wondered why. And then I read some article by Michael McLean who had explained he'd kind of gone through that too. And so I'm like, well, I'm not the only one. And it wasn't until President Nelson started making some changes in the way we do our Sunday meetings. They started feeling the spirit again. Hmm. And I was like, okay, now I I feel what's been lacking for all this time. And I started feeling it again at church again. I was like, oh, that's nice. Yeah. It's, It's good to feel that again.
1: Yep. So similar but different. Yeah, no, that's interesting, and I I think it's really powerful because I wouldn't give up, and I have actively fought for both. Mm-hmm. I love the Taijitu, the Yin Yang, the the joined opposites that fulfill and complete each other, and I th- I think there's a lot of power in that symbol throughout the universe. And I think that what you and I have experienced is is that it you can you can have complete and beautiful truth in either side, the spiritual or the rational. But I don't think that either is complete without the other. And in fact, Doctrine and Covenants, we read that we're supposed to do both. Yeah. We're supposed to study it out in our minds. Right. And we're told that it is going to be given to us in our minds and in our hearts. Hmm. And then after we study it out in our minds, we're supposed to take it to God. And we're supposed to seek for the spiritual acknowledgement. We're supposed to use the rational and the spiritual. And people who just end up relying on just one are working with half they're working with one eye closed. Interesting.
0: I'd read an article once about the crises of faith. I was talking about how that's something that really everybody needs to go through. And the reason we know everybody has to go through it is because Christ had his as well Hmm. at the, at the moment when he cried, why, why have you forsaken me? Mm -hmm. You know, he was, he was having that same Hmm. moment. He had a moment where the spirit wasn't there with him. Interesting. And and that was just a powerful thing for me to realize.
1: Yeah. There's a, a beautiful concept, and I'm sorry, I don't know the names. The philosopher who came up with it said that he would not give one wit for the simplicity on this side of complexity, but he would give everything for the simplicity on the other side of complexity. So, meaning... We can live, as we're children, we start out in a very simple world that's black and white. It's easy truth. Um, we know mom loves us. We know dad loves us. But then dad loses his temper. And then mom is crying in a corner and we don't know why. Then we start to develop, we start to experience complexity. And as we are evolving through our own lives, we start to fight with the complexity. And we start to, we have to choose what we're going to do with that complexity. And we can either choose to be angry and reject this, the, what we thought were the simple truths and then become bitter cynics, or we can fight through the complexity to the other side where the philosopher says is another simplicity. Mm. And it's that other side of simplicity where we have accepted the complexity, where we have accepted that our father and our mother do love us, despite what the fact that they are humans. And uh, that, that we then also learned that we too can be loving fathers and mothers, despite our being humans. And the simplicity on that side is a very powerful place to be. Bruce Hafen, Bruce C. Hafen wrote a wonderful talk. He gave a, I believe it was a devotional address. He was the president of Rick's college back, okay. back in the day. He was the president of Ricks College at the time, but I believe the devotional was given at a BYU, now what we would call BYU Provo, but at the time BYU devotional. And it's called On Dealing with Uncertainty. And he was the one that introduced me to this idea of what he calls these three stages. And he described how people who go through crises of faith, they're in the complexity stage. Mm -hmm. And as you are in that crisis of faith, you have to fight your way through it. And the fact of the matter is if you have never experienced a crisis of faith, you're still likely on this side of complexity. And for me, that's a terrifying place to be. Mm-hmm. I've tried very hard to help my own children to, that's going to sound terrible, but I, I don't mean to like throw them into a crisis of faith, but I want them to experience the complexities so that they're not in what I think is a very fragile place, which is the simplicity on this side of the complexity. Right. So it's a, it's a powerful, terrifying, very important path to take.
0: Which reminds me of two things. So just the other night we were uh, discussing a similar concept in our family home evening. And my daughter was like, Oh, it's just like in inside out where, you know, sad and happy had to combine and Mm. it just became this more complex thing.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: And it wasn't just a simple one or the other, but they still coexist. And then it was able to develop all these more complicated Feelings, Right. So, but then that also, when you were talking about it, it reminded me of, so I took a class, one of my audio classes was called signal processing and it was essentially four years of calculus crammed into <laughs> one semester, but it wasn't all of calculus. It was just the calculus that you need for audio stuff. Hmm. And so we went and we learned all this complicated stuff. But once you know that complicated stuff, it takes really complicated Formulas, And it turns them into formulas that are as easy as one plus one equals two, hmm. which was a really cool thing to learn about calculus because I never took calculus in high school. And so when I went into this class, it was kind of terrifying because I'm like, I've never actually done any calculus before. <laughs> uh here we go. And I did pretty good. I got lost the last two weeks of class. I still haven't quite wrapped my head around it. I could see the light coming on in other people's eyes. <laughs> And they're like, "Oh, that makes this so much easier." So, like, I get the concept, and I could kind of understand it, but it like never kind of clicked for me. Mm -hmm. So I was I was lost those last two weeks. But I know at some point I'm going to have to take those classes anyway. But (laughs) 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 it's an interesting concept. You can this really complicated stuff becomes very simple, quite simple.
1: Yeah, yeah. So that's really cool. Well, I think the inside out concept is perfect, and if you look at it, that's. I just love, I love Mormon theology. Love it. I think I love it because I think it's true. Right. But I plummet and I I don't find uh, a depth. When I find problems, which there are problems, I I find that they generally are problems of man. Mm -hmm. But anyway, the idea of happiness and sadness being necessary um, to make a rich being. Mormon theology describes a God who weeps. Mm -hmm. A God who has joy in the progress of his children, but a God who also weeps for the horrible things that we do to each other. And this is not a God that you find in other religions. This is a God who is eternally both happy beyond anything we can imagine and sad beyond anything we can imagine. I think that we, as we are looking to our own long horizon, we are going to need to embrace that as well. There's opportunity for us if we are not wanting the terror of what it means to be that kind of a being. But if we choose not to be that kind of a being, then we also not have the opportunities and the joys of that kind of a being. And as a parent, you're a parent, I'm a parent. We know what that's like, right? I mean, I would never give up my children. My children are this beautiful, amazing thing in my life. And they're a pain in the butt. Absolutely. (laughs) And I would not, I would not give up any of it. It's, I, I look back at my life and, and I, like everybody else on the planet has had rough stuff happen. I wouldn't, I wouldn't go back and change a thing because if I changed any of it, I would not have the joys that I have as well. And that is what true beauty is. My,
0: uh,
1: Which calls to mind something that
0: uh, it's, this just gets more and more cemented in me every day as I go forward. Every time I am at all frustrated with my children and I'm, I'm kneeling in prayer or I'm just sitting and contemplating and I'm thinking to myself, why can't they just... <laughs> And then it always dawns on me, oh, this is exactly how Father in Heaven thinks about me. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's Mm -hmm. the same thing. Why can't he just get it? Why doesn't he just see how simple it really is? Yeah.
1: And that's, I believe, why we have children. Yeah. So
0: that it can open our eyes to that.
1: Yeah. (laughs) I think it'll. so it can open our eyes to the pain and the beauty. Yeah. 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 Absolutely.
0: So we like to do a thing on the show called i tick it's an interview section we ask everybody that comes on the show the same six questions to figure out what makes them tick the one for this episode will be isaac stewart who was on the podcast a little while ago and so we'll play that now this part of the podcast I tick. We ask everyone the same six questions to figure out what makes them tick. Okay. So
2: tell us your name and what you do. My name is Isaac Stewart. I am a an art director for Dragon Steel Entertainment. Tell us your earliest memory. My earliest memory is when my brother was born on my birthday. So I was I was two years old and so this isn't a it's not a complete memory. But I've asked questions of my parents and, and they, they're like, wow, you remember that? These were things that they never told me. I remember getting a tricycle and I was riding it around in the waiting room. Cause I, there was a split door kind of thing. And, you know, I remember seeing the nurse, one of the nurses through the split door thing, but waiting for my brother to be born. So that's, that's, and he was, he was born on my birthday and we shared a birthday. Still do. <laughs> Hasn't changed. Tell us a story from your childhood
0: that has influenced your life, maybe something you haven't shared often.
2: I I don't know. This is just something that comes to mind. On my eighth birthday, I, eh, I'm not going to tell that story. (laughs) It's about, I I got a, the the gift that I got for my birthday from my grandparents was a plastic deer. It was like a really nice model of a plastic (laughs) deer, right? And then that was on my eighth birthday. And then when I was 12, they... You know, I got my hunting license, and then I was told to go out and shoot these things that, you know, I had this beautiful model of, and, and, and we did, and I hated it. I, I, I don't know. So now I'm very nonviolent. Okay. <laughs> I don't, my whole, I'm from Idaho. My family all own guns and like to go out and shoot them. And I, I I'm not, I'm not a gun person. I'm fine with people owning guns, but right. yeah, me, I, I don't like it but what's funny is that i hadn't touched a gun in, in years and then i went up for thanksgiving and we went out into the went out into the desert and shot skeet and i i don't know if it's uh, because i'm an artist and i and i have good hand eye coordination in that regard because i'm terrible at video games but mm-hmm. that, they gave me the shotgun and i would shoot these skeets out of the air just like <laughs> nothing else and and be, beat all of them but uh so maybe it's a lost calling i don't know there there you go there's a, a weird story that kind of that, that was the one that I said I wasn't going to tell, but then I told it because it just being a hunter is so not part of my identity. Uh-huh. But there was a point when I was a kid that I thought it would be so cool when I could get my hunting license and go hunting. And you know what I did when I went hunting with my dad is that he put me on top of a hill and then I would flush out deer through, we'd get up at 4am and go tromping through the snow and then when the sun came out, I would sit in a clearing and I would read Robert Jordan books. <laughs> so, so we can see what, what, uh, my true love became. And it, so weird hunting is so not part of my identity. So I, I, do own one gun and it's, uh, when my grandfather passed away, he, he left guns for the boys. Okay. <laughs> and, um, it's a, it's a muzzle loader pistol. Okay. Uh, so, so, there is no way that this thing is accidentally going off right? because that's just not how these things work. Right. So I, I have that because he made it himself and, um, it looks like a really cool pirate pistol. That's pretty cool. So, you know, it's also a prop, but it's also something that's not easily going to go off. I mean, right. yeah.
0: Share with us a piece of music that's been highly influential in your life.
2: So the first thing that comes to mind is I remember going over to my dad's friend's house and he had a son who was a few years older than me and I was probably eight or nine and he played a Chicago tape and there was something about Chicago that really caught me and I, I think it might have been Peter Cetera's vocals and just sort of the harmonies and things that, that they used in those and so that may have been something like You're the Inspiration. It was something from from uh, Chicago 16 or 17. Okay. Um, but that was really influential on to me. And then the the second one, so that, that kind of led me through my teenage years. I was kind of like this closet ballad person. I just loved that sort of emotional type, type thing. When the 2000s hit, somebody introduced me to Muse. The early stuff didn't really grab me as much as maybe like starting in their third album, but then I was hooked. There's something about Muse that I really love their experimentation, their, their riffs. It's great stuff.
0: Share with us a piece of media. This can be music or otherwise. This is anything that's been influential in your life.
2: I was a missionary for my church, went to the Philippines. And when I got home, and and while while you're a missionary, you usually abstain from media for the most part. I I do remember seeing a few seconds of The Fifth Element while I was in the Philippines there, because that that was about that time frame. But I got home, and uh, the next day or maybe even that night... My parents took me to the Dollar Theater where Mulan was playing. it had come out; it had gone through its run, and now it was on its way out uh, toward VHS, probably at the time. Anyway, I, wa- I I saw that, and the the music and the story coming all together, it was really speaking to me. I just I, it hit me really strongly. Probably because I hadn't really consumed any kind of storytelling outside of uh, the Bible and the Book of Mormon during that time period. I was kind of starved, I think, for Mm. other storytelling. Mulan really spoke to me and it, it put me on this path of, so before I left, I had been doing all these science classes in college. I was going to become a dentist. And then I saw Mulan and it stuck with me. And I'm like, I need to be an animator. I need to be That's something that I've always been interested in. I need to tell stories with pictures. I need need to do this. So when I went back to school and I was continuing to do dental prep classes and science classes and things, in the back of my mind, this animation thing was going on. And I finally looked it up and found some classes at school. And that completely took me to a new major and kind of led me where I am today. So thanks to Mulan that I still love. I'll Make a Man Out of You. Mm -hmm. That song is great. I love that song. Fantastic. Tell us about your passion and why you do it. My passion is storytelling. I get to facilitate that with my day job. The thing that I don't get paid for is telling stories. So even I'll find myself working on stories outside of my day job because I love it. I I was actually thinking about this today because there's a project at work that... And I'm not going to say the name of it, but there was something that I was doing at work that every time an email came in about it, I would groan and I'd say, oh, I have to do that thing. And now I got put in charge of that thing and I get to figure out the stories for that thing now. And now the thing that was, that made me groan is the thing I look forward to. Okay. When it eventually comes out, people will know exactly what I'm talking about. But that's okay. They they can know if I groaned about the, the stuff beforehand. Um, but it, but it, it involves storytelling. I love taking stories, figuring out what makes them tick. It drives my family insane because I go to Frozen 2 and we watch it and they love it. And all I want to do is talk about, this is how you know I like a movie. I like it enough that I want to fix it. Mm-hmm. And so my brain is going, okay... Here was a cool part, this was a cool part, but I didn't like how they bridged this thing, so how could they do that? Or here was a big problem with the movie, how could they fix that? I could tell you what I think of Frozen 2, if you want. (laughs) But I think they missed the mark on the ending. Is the statute of limitations up on uh, spoilers for that yet? I think so. So uh, I'm just going to say, there's a lot of things that I... But I I did like it. Right. It was beautiful, and, and, and all these fantastical elements, but... Oh boy, it really bugged me when they did, they pulled their punch at the end and didn't destroy the city. Yeah. I'm just like, no, no, there has to be a cost for this. Yeah. And then the the people can rebuild up on the hillside or something, but Mm -hmm. there's gotta be a cost. I kind of had that same, it was
0: a fleeting thought for me. I didn't dwell on it. Um, I think I spend too much time around people that complain about movies. Mm hmm and and just choose to hate movies. Hmm. And I'm like, but I, it's my favorite medium or one of my favorite right, mediums. Yeah. As, as you can see, I've got one or two movies in here.
2: Yeah.
0: Uh, <laughs> and a lot of these movies, people look at them and, and kind of groan. Like, right. Oh, that's, ugh. But I buy it because <laughs> mm-hmm. I love the medium and even a really, a movie has to be really bad for me to not like it. Even when I can see its weaknesses, right, yeah, and and that was a, I was like, oh, they're gonna do it, and then when they didn't, I was just like, oh, yeah. But I didn't dwell on that, right, yeah, kind of a thing. But I did notice that. So
2: that, that's that's what I do, and it, it drives my family bonkers because then I because <laughs> but but I like that I like taking it apart and seeing what are the pieces and how how could it be made stronger, right? It doesn't mean I did I hated the movie, right. It, it just means that I, I I enjoyed it on a on a level, but that that's just how my brain works. I wanna I I want to tell my own version of right. it, basically. Yeah, I think that there's value to even movies that you say eh, was that that wasn't a great mm-hmm. movie, but there's something about it that sparks something. Like I'm looking over here on on your shelf, and I see Waterworld.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: I remember in going and watching that in the theater. It's been a long time since I've seen it. I don't know. If it was a great movie at all, but I don't remember the story being, oh, that's so amazing. But the setting was incredible, really interesting, very imaginative. There's always things like that that you can glean from movies. And, and you know what? My favorite movie of all time is probably Pacific Rim. Okay. You know, it's not Shakespeare. No. But it's a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, there are going to be people that are going to rag on that movie. But it's, um, for me... It's amazing. So the movie it doesn't have to be perfect for it, for it to be something that is amazing to, it really speaks to your soul. You right.
0: Know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah.
2: Waterworld, I thought it was a fine film. When that
0: one came out, it was pre-internet. Yeah. I know a lot of people ragged on it. Right. But yeah. when I saw it, I was like, I really liked it. Mm-hmm. The people that were ragging on it were just ragging on it for business
2: right, issues. Yeah.
0: You know, they... They had to reshoot half the film because they were using the wrong lenses on the cameras. Oh, no. And so the angles were too wide on the underwater scenes, Hmm. and it made them unusable in the cut. Huh. And so they had to go and reshoot half the movie, which doubled Uh, the budget. Right. And then because if a movie doesn't make back its budget in one or two weeks, it's considered a bomb. Yeah. And so that one was considered the biggest bomb ever because they had the biggest budget ever and they shot the movie twice. So and that's the other interesting thing about movies is like, if it doesn't make its budget back in the domestic market, they consider it a flop. That doesn't mean it didn't make money because right, yeah. they have, they have the international mm-hmm. and, then they, and then they have home video and there are very, very, very few movies that don't make back their
2: budget. Right. Yeah. At least in that long tail.
0: Yeah. So it's, it's an interesting—I'm I'm not only just interested in the films, but I'm really interested in what goes on behind the scenes, right, too. Yeah, the
2: stories behind yeah, it. Yeah,
0: I think that's just that's, fascinating.
2: That's interesting. You know, I, I pick one movie off your shelf, and you have a, a story about how it was made. That's cool.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Isaac, what makes you tick?
2: I feel like a lot of the things that I do kind of feel like they're for myself, you know, creative endeavors and things like that. But if I think about the way that I try to live— and the things that really bring me joy, it's always about other people. You know, I look at my kids and I think, oh, I want to give them the world. You know, I, I look at my wife and I say, boy, I need to be the best husband that I can be so that, you know, I don't want to make her life bad, right? I want right. I want her to feel like, wow, you know, I had a good life, right? So, and I just, I look around at the other people around me and I, and I think, you know, that, so what makes me tick? I wish that it was more altruistic, but that that's an aspect of what makes me tick is thinking about other people and their and what's going on in their lives and what maybe if there's a way that I could help or uplift them. The other thing is creative endeavors. If I'm not working on a creative endeavor, I shrivel up. My soul starts to retreat. I get depressed. I, I have no outlet. Creative endeavors make me tick as well. Too many creative endeavors though, it makes me, it goes back to that feeling of depression and too much to do. So there's a, there's a balance there. So creative endeavors, and then realizing that we're all on the same boat, we should help each other out.
0: Excellent. Well, if people want to check out your work, get in contact with you, how can they do that?
2: So I have a, the place that I'm probably most active is my Instagram account, mainly because that's where my older kids kind of do their things. So I kind of have adopted that. I'm on Facebook and Twitter. I'm not very active on those though, because I, I found that I can only do one. So my Instagram handle is I-Z-Y-K Stewart, S-T-E-W-A-R-T. The I-Z-Y-K is not how I spell my name. That is because when I played Castlevania as a child, <laughs> there were only four letters and I wanted it to be as unique a way of spelling my name as possible. So so that that's where I can be found. My website is in a horrible need of an upgrade, but it is Isaac isaacstewart.com. I guess that's the best way to <laughs> to uh, interact is say hi on Instagram.
0: Very good. Well, thanks for being on iTick. Thank you. So, um, Carl, it's been really great having you on the episode. Thank you. It's been a lot of fun. And thanks for coming in. I really enjoyed talking with you. I'm glad we got to expound further on the conversation we were having the other day. Me uh, too. It's been enlightening. I've really enjoyed it. So uh, thanks for coming to record. Thank you. See you everyone.